This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, I have back with me Morrison and Forrester partner James Cucchio, certainly a FCPA Compliance Report podcast favorite. In this episode, we take a look at the firm's always excellent anti-corruption newsletter, the top 10 developments in international anti-corruption for March. We take a look at the MTS settlement, changes in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy on deconfliction and ephemeral messaging, the OECD working group on bribery reports on the UK foreign bribery enforcement record, CFTC entry into FCPA enforcement, and we conclude with a look at India, which appointed its first anti-corruption ombudsman. It's a fascinating exploration and always great conversation with James Kukios, one of the top white-collar defense lawyers, former DOJer in the FCPA unit. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today we have back with us fan favorite, James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester. James, uh, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. James, uh, as uh, as is our want, we take up the Morrison and Forrester top 10 anti International anti-corruption developments. Uh, this episode, we're going to take up take up the newsletter for March. Um, so, with that, really, uh, what struck me about March, uh, as well noted in your newsletter from the FCPA enforcement world, was the MTS settlement. So, uh, I just read a lot into this. It seemed to me a very bad set of facts with a very very bad set of actors in a very bad place with a very bad foreign government official. So uh, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that assessment, but from where you sit, what did you see about the MTS settlement? That's a pretty concise description, Tom. I think you uh, I think you hit it. Um, well, this, of course, is uh, part of a, a much bigger case. This is the third telecommunications company to resolve allegations um, regarding alleged bribes to the daughter of the former Uzbek president. Uh, in order to gain access to the Uzbek telecom market. And so the allegations are that um, it's a little unclear exactly what her position was. She was the daughter of the president. Um, She did have some other positions as well, but for some reason she was able to have uh, quite a bit of influence over the uh, Uzbek telecom market. So um, she required allegedly these companies, including MTS, but a couple others, Tel- um, Sonora and uh, Vimplecom, to pay bribes in order to get the licenses to operate in the market itself, and then to continue p- to pay bribes to uh, to be able to continue to do um, to do business in those countries. Uh, and the the numbers are just astronomical. I mean, um, the most recent allegation is that um, the company paid about $420 million to this official over an eight-year period. Uh, And this is just one of the companies alleged to have paid money to her. So she obviously made a lot of money, if the allegations are true, um, off of this deal. 
The uh, the amount of total amount of money paid to her was simply stunning. I think I saw a figure it was uh, it was well over a billion dollars. And I really like the way you characterize that, James. Is really this is is one more uh, in a series of enforcement actions uh, with these uh, specific uh, actors in uh, Uzbekistan. But for the compliance practitioner, this case also brought, I thought, some really interesting lessons. Some, most of those lessons were detailed in the uh, settlement agreement and the, um, um, cr- I think, uh, criminal plea, uh, one of which was we had uh, the company actually, the business people from the company, objected to many of these transactions because there wasn't an appropriate business justification. And obviously, that's a red flag, but I was really impressed that uh, from the MTS side, they actually did business analysis of some of the uh, corrupt deals they were supposed to be a part of. Um, kind of how how would you uh, suggest a company look at that fact uh, in terms of a red flag? No, absolutely. That's right. I mean, uh, compliance depends on people like this to, to raise the red flags and to try to to do um, their job and and try to stop these deals. Um, of course, part of the problem is it went through. Um, and so you need to make sure that there's a way to, to, to really put teeth behind that. Um, just to follow up on one point you made there, Tom, as well. Um, and then maybe we can get back to this, but, uh, the, uh, U S and foreign authorities have actually, um, forfeited about $2.6 billion. So it's, it's just a huge wow. amount of money. And I think, you know, another notable part of this is the, just the incredible amount of international cooperation that went into this case. So obviously you have the U S but you have the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, Latvia, United Kingdom, France, and Ireland. And there are probably others as well. Um, but those are some of the big players that have got together to bring these prosecutions and these asset forfeiture actions, which is also very, obviously we've talked about it before, but a very important lesson as well is that, um, anti-corruption enforcement used to just be the U.S., but more and more you're getting this international coalition um, working on bribery schemes. James, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about this case was the nature of the defendant's uh, cooperation or lack of cooperation. Uh, how how would the department or someone in the FCPA unit or the fraud section or perhaps even you had to face this deal with a recalcitrant um, uh, company who's really outside the jurisdiction of the U.S., and uh, how how can you persuade them, or how are they persuaded to cooperate at all? Very difficult. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think that there are so many, um, there's so much talk about things like the FCPA corporate enforcement policy that we're going to talk about, I believe, today, uh, and why FCPA enforcement is just a little bit different, maybe a lot different than other kinds of enforcement. Um, trying to get evidence from overseas, trying to get, you may have jurisdiction over overseas companies, but actually trying to get them in court here and things like that is incredibly difficult. Um, so you really need to use all the tools available to you, whether that be um, strong evidence, which is obviously great, um, some concessions here and there. Um, the international cooperation is really a part of it to persuade a company that you can't dodge the United States and and um, get off scot free. Uh, that there, you know, other countries will step in as well. So, I mean, a, a 
resolution like this is going to take um, all the tools in the tools bo- toolboxes to bring a company um, to the table. Tom, did I lose you? Really helps if you unmute your microphone. Oh, I'm well, not muted. Muted. No, sorry. I'm muted. Sorry. Oh, you. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, the uh, one of the things that struck me is perhaps how extraordinarily difficult the monitor's role or job will be. Not only do you have a company that uh, I cannot tell from the settlement documents that they're committed to this uh, resolution, but you know, obviously they're a Russian company, and he's going to have to be in Russia. He's going to have to deal with uh, a different legal system and different players. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on really uh, how does a monitor move forward in that situation? And then what what is the role of the department in receiving a monitor's report and or working with a monitor going forward? No, obviously. I mean, there are different. Um, there, there are a lot of challenges um, posed when a monitor is doing work in an overseas jurisdiction. I remember um, uh, you may recall some of the the monitors with French companies from a decade ago, where um, the monitors had to deal with French blocking statutes and things like that. Um, and then, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but China has a new blocking statute. And what happens if uh, a Chinese company gets a monitor? How do you deal with that um, in the FCPA context? And and Russia is going to be very similar. I mean, um, not a country that we have a strong law enforcement um, relationship with. Maybe not a country that's going to be particularly favorable for having a monitor there. So it's going to be very, very challenging. And the department's going to have to um, potentially weigh in and encourage the company to fulfill the terms of the monitorship and um, or else exercise some of the remedies that it has. Um, but an extremely difficult um, position for sure. So, James, let me uh, move to a different area. We had a announcement, or uh, perhaps that's not strong enough, uh, a modification to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy in March, and that really uh, seemed to me center, center around the issue of deconfliction. And I think that issue still uh, befuddles many compliance practitioners. So I was wondering if you just might be able to talk about what deconfliction is, how it pops up, and what the change was, and whether you think that's going to to help that issue going forward. Sure. So just a little bit of background first. You're right. On March 8, uh, 2019, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division announced some revisions to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, That policy had come out late 2017, so it's been on the books for about a year and a half. Um, In my mind, uh, the biggest change was actually the change to the ephemeral messaging uh, policy uh, part of that, where um, DOJ had originally said um, you have to prohibit ephemeral messaging, um, which caused a lot of problems in the business world because a lot of businesses, especially places like in China and Brazil, they people use it all the time. Um, and DOJ relaxed that. Um, so to me, that was the biggest part of it. The deconfliction is also a big um, part of the change as well. The revised policy clarified that when a company that is seeking full credit for cooperation uh, must coordinate or deconflict its internal investigation with DOJ, um, and basically what that means is 
DOJ can, for example, uh, ask the company to not interview a witness um, and instead let DOJ do that first. Um, or other potential investigative steps that DOJ might think will will cause problems with its investigation. It tends to be witness interviews, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so the most clear example would be, as I said, DOJ would say, hey, if you haven't interviewed Tom Fox yet, please don't. We want to be able to interview Tom Fox first. And then after we do that, you can interview them. You know, the SFO takes a much stronger uh, stance on this. They they say things like, we don't want internal investigations uh, because that's like a company trampling on the evidence of the crime scene. DOJ doesn't go that far, but it does say that at certain times, if you're cooperating, we're going to ask you to stand down on certain things, and you need to do that in order to get full cooperation credit. It can be very challenging. Uh, it's not unreasonable for DOJ to ask for that, but depending on the magnitude of the request, the duration of the request, and, and the like, it can be very difficult to accompany trying to do an internal investigation to get to the bottom of what happened, uh, to remediate the problems. If you're not able to talk to the people who were involved or otherwise get to the bottom of what happened. Uh, and so there was some, uh, I think there's been some pushback from the defense bar that the deconfliction requests have become too much, uh, too many witnesses, too long of a time. The other issue that's kind of going on in parallel is that this criticism from some of the judges in the Southern District of New York and elsewhere that DOJ is outsourcing its investigations. And the more DOJ says, you can do this, you can't do that, you must do this, you must not do that, uh, the greater risk it will be um, perceived that DOJ is actually directing an investigation, which can have all kinds of ramifications for discovery, um, for the perception of judges about what's going on. And so I think part of also what DOJ was trying to do there is to say, look, you know, we're not directing these investigations. There just may come a time where we ask you to not take a few steps, in other words, to deconflict with us so it doesn't mess up our investigation. So the, um, the next area, James, I want to visit, and this is actually something we visited uh, several times in the past, which is the uh, OECD Working Group Bribery Reports. And you guys reported that there's a, a phase four, two-year follow-up report for the United Kingdom. I was wondering if you might share with us what, what that is. I know you've had, you had experience with that at the Department of Justice, and how really would the United Kingdom use this follow-up report? Yep. So um, very interesting. The, the Organization for the Economic Cooperation and Development has a working group on bribery. Uh, that deals with the uh, anti-bribery convention. And one of the really unique aspects of the working group and the convention is that there's a peer review process. And it's a peer review process that has some teeth. Um, so a couple of years ago, in March of 2017, um, there had originally been three phases of peer review. Um, those had already happened. So the OECD working group came up with phase four, and the UK was one of the first ones to actually go through the phase four evaluations. And as you said, this was a, in March of 2019, they had a, a two-year follow-up. Um, and what the working group said is that for the most part, the UK is doing a good job. Um, I think 
for most observers, you know, looking at who's enforcing foreign bribery laws, I think you'd have to agree that the United States is still number one, uh, but the UK is probably number two, or at least arguably in the top three, three to five. Um, and so the um, the working group said that the UK has done a lot of good things. Um, they praised one of the um, new laws called the Criminal Finances Act of 2017, and they praise the increased level of and resources for enforcement of the UK's foreign bribery laws. But the the working group also said that there was room for improvement. And in particular, the working group said in this report that they were concerned that the, quote, total number of finalized and ongoing cases relative to the UK economy remains relatively low, unquote. And they cite the fact that there is just three concluded foreign bribery cases since March of 2017. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with the OECD working group. They do a very good job, but it's also you're 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 criticizing one of the strongest enforcement authorities in in the world when it comes to foreign bribery. So yes, uh, obviously they could probably do more and do better, but I think the SFO on the whole does a pretty good job. Uh, let me turn now to something that, frankly, uh, I'm not sure I scratched my head over, but I was certainly a little bit confused, uh, where the Commodities Future Trading Commission, the CFTC, announced an entry into uh, FCP, the FCPA arena. And um, my confusion was I, I really had not appreciated that this agency was set up to enforce overseas bribery related to U.S. commodities future trading. Uh, so I was wanted to get your your thoughts on this and, and maybe enlighten me and some of my other confused listeners. Yeah, this is a big development, uh, the CFTC's stepping into the foreign bribery enforcement arena. Um, I, I, I'm not sure it's a, it was a natural thought to anyone, Tom, so I don't think you, that you're alone. <laughs> okay. And have a feeling, but it's not necessarily that they have jurisdiction to enforce foreign bribery laws, it's a little more subtle, and it's that um, foreign bribery can affect uh, various things that fall within the CFTC's jurisdiction. So, for example, um, they say that foreign bribery might constitute fraud, manipulation, false reporting, or a number of other types of violations under the Commodity Exchange Act, and thus being subject to enforcement actions brought by the CFTC. And then in their announcement, they, they give some examples of this. They say, for example, uh, a bribe could be employed to secure business in connection with activities regulated by the CFTC, like trading, advising, or dealing in swaps or derivatives, or to manipulate benchmarks that serve as the basis for related derivatives contracts, and that the bribery itself might alter the prices in commodity markets that drive U.S. derivative prices. So it's a little bit more of a knock-on effect. Um, not that they have jurisdiction over foreign bribery per se, but they have jurisdiction over the knock-on effect that might uh, come from foreign bribery. It's very interesting Um what basically it means is if any um if you're investigating a, a an alleged foreign bribery scheme and that scheme involves a commodity 
it could be an agricultural product, for example, um, then the CFTC will likely assert that it has jurisdiction over that as well. And what we've been seeing is that DOJ and CFTC are coordinating, not unlike the way that the um, SEC and DOJ coordinate. For example, uh, when I was at DOJ, if, if we would get a self-report from a publicly traded company, we would either call the SEC ourselves or more likely we'd encourage the reporting company to do so as well. And I think most companies eventually just um, would report to both DOJ and SEC if they were publicly traded. Um, but now you see uh, DOJ reaching out to CFTC if there's a commodity involved in the foreign bribery allegation and CFTC gets involved at the very beginning, much like SEC would do in a, in a um, publicly traded company case. Um, and of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, um, but it does clearly cause complications for companies that are trying to resolve these because you have another regulator um, getting involved, and that always increases the complexity of trying to investigate and resolve uh, an FCPA matter. Now, the CFTC has said some some good things, um, echoing, for example, the piling on policy and some of the other policies that DOJ and, and frankly, SEC as well have pursued over the years. They've talked about trying to coordinate um, penalties. Um, they will meet with you uh, in the same meeting, so you don't have to have a meeting with both CFTC and DOJ to present the same information. You can meet with both of them at the same time. So I think CFTC does does recognize the fact that this causes some additional um, complexities and burden on companies. But at the end of the day, that is the effect. Um, companies that are dealing in commodities may have to answer to both DOJ, the CFTC, if you're publicly traded, the SEC, and of course, foreign regulators as well. So it just it, it greatly increases the complexity of the foreign bribery enforcement landscape for companies. And James, for our last uh, story on this episode, uh, one that uh, really, to me, emphasizes not only the, the international nature of your newsletter, but the international nature of the fight against uh, bribery and corruption, where uh, you report that India appoints its first anti-corruption ombudsman. And certainly from where I sit, anything the country of India would do to help move the ball forward in their country is welcome news. But I was wondering what your thoughts might be. Uh, that's the takeaway, Tom. Um, obviously, the uh, um, you know India is. It, I guess in all, when it, in relative terms, it's not horrible in terms of corruption. It's seventy eighth out of one hundred eighty in the TI CPI. Uh, still not great, and I think most people who have um, done business in India or or had experience in India have heard stories or experienced themselves um, that there's a high level of corruption in India. So I agree with you. Anything that India does to try to combat corruption is a good thing. In this particular story, um, what happened was in 2013, there was an act called the Lokpal Act, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, which authorizes um, certain parts of, uh, of India um, to appoint an ombudsman um, in, in order to fight corruption. And that hadn't happened um, until January of 2019. Um, so almost six years went with no ombudsman um, being, being appointed. And on, in March of 2019, 
the Indian president um, cleared the way for the ombudsman to take office. Uh, this person is the former Indian Supreme is a former Indian Supreme Court justice, uh, Panaki Chandra Ghosh, and I apologize uh, for somebody who, who myself has a strange last name. Uh, uh, for some people, apologize if I mispronounce uh, that. But he is going to become the first anti-corruption ombudsman in India. And it will be very interesting to see, given India's relatively low CPI ranking, but very high growth rate. Um, as we report, um, it's predict- India is predicted to be the fastest growing major economy in the world over the next two years. So it'll be very interesting to see if the ombudsman can help um, uh, reduce corruption while still having an economy that's really soaring in India. Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to uh, thank you for visiting with me. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We'll link to the uh, Morrison and Forrester March 2019 Top 10 Developments in Anti-Corruption newsletter in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.